0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 20th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In managing pain using opioids, dosages can get very high very quickly. But the DEA's mission isn't to help doctors effectively treat patients. It's to enforce drug laws. Pain treatment specialist William Hurwitz found himself the subject of DEA inquiries when he tried to both obey the law and treat his patients effectively. He detailed his experience at the Cato Institute yesterday. In the first trial, uh, which concluded in, I think, 2004, I was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And during the sentencing hearing, uh, one has an opportunity to have one's friends and supporters give little talks to the judge in hopes of softening their response. I felt as if it was a eulogy at my own funeral. I thought that I'd give you some background. My case really occurred in the context of changing attitudes toward pain management and opioids and a reaction by the federal regulatory authorities and now by the various boards of medicine to what has been perceived as an epidemic of drug abuse diversion. But when I got out of medical school in 1971, Um, I was a Peace Corps doctor for a couple of years in Brazil until 75. I finished my residency a couple of years later. And I opened a practice in Adams Morgan and in the Palisades part of uh, D.C. And over the next 10 or 11 years, until 1991, I had a very pleasant life. I was married. I had two children, and I bought a house in McLean. During the course of those uh, 11 or 12 years, Uh, four patients came to me who had chronic pain. One was a German military attache whose head had been pinned between two cars in an automobile accident and had post-concussion headaches. One was a PhD in history and specifically had written a, a history thesis on Paraguay. My wife was from Paraguay, so I had an affinity with him, and he'd come to me with his medical records from a University of Southern California Medical Center doctor who had been treating him with opioid medications. A third patient was a woman who was born with a bicornuate uterus. This is a situation in which there's a septum in the middle of the uterus and it leads to severely painful menstrual cramps. So on a monthly basis, she was in agony. And the fourth patient who came to me was uh, a young government attorney who worked for the Maritime Commission. And who had been a scuba diver and who had made the mistake of ascending too quickly and developed the bends, which is a a circumstance in which nitrogen, which when you're deep is under pressure, as you come up it turns into little bubbles. And those bubbles then obstruct the flow of blood to, in in his case, uh, his hip. So he had something called aseptic uh, necrosis of his hip. A vascular necrosis of his hip, which is a chronically painful condition because at the border of dead bone and live bone, there's a chronic inflammatory reaction. And because he was a young guy, and because hip replacements have a life expectancy of five or six years and need to be replaced, he was too young uh, to contemplate having a series of hip replacements that would have perhaps been an alternative solution to his pain. In the course of receiving these patients, I became more familiar with the developing literature on pain. Uh, The analysis of pain had changed dramatically. There was sort of the older conception, which is um, like a telephone. That is, it rings in one place, a signal is sent to your brain, and you have pain. The newer conception was that there's a switchboard (laughs) which can adjust the volume and this is called the feedback control mechanism of pain. And the function of endorphins in the the body to modulate the response to pain was beginning to be elucidated and the relationship between the opioid medications, morphine and similar medicines, uh, in modulating pain perception was developing in its sophistication from the late 50s through the middle of 80s and early 90s. The attorney uh, was being prescribed by me 105 milligram oxycodone pills a day. And I don't know how many people take 100 pills a day, probably not too many. But from the point of view of most laymen, that looks like a lot of pills. And what's hard to understand for which I say the uninformed here, is that the progression of tolerance to opioids is a geometric progression. If one doesn't work, take two. If two don't work, take four. If four don't work, take eight. The distinction as you double the dose is the same, and tolerance develops pretty quickly. So as you increase the dose, you can get to pretty high numbers. And it turns out if you don't increase the dose, opioids sensitize the body to pain. So starting somebody on opioids and not giving them enough to compensate for the increased sensitization, in effect, is condemning them to somewhere, to to being in effect on the borderline between withdrawal and increased pain. So my strategy, in accordance with and in compliance with the general instructions about opioid therapy, was to titrate the dose to effect. There was a day in 1991, the fall of 1991, when DEA agents and people from the D.C., uh, what's it, what do they call it, Reg, uh, medical regulatory board, came into my office, uh, told me something was bad. Uh, I had actually been aware the pharmacy below my office is where my patient had filled his medicines, and I had retained a lawyer uh, at that time. However, when I called the lawyer and said they're here, he wasn't available. And the DEA agent said, we'd like you to surrender your DEA registration. And I didn't know very much about how these things worked at the time. So I said, if, if I prove that I'm right, will I get it back? And they said, yes. But what I didn't realize is that if you surrender it, you have the burden of proof to show that you should receive it. If you don't surrender it, they have the burden to take it away from you. In any event, I retained another attorney, and we had a hearing before the D.C. board And the attitude of the members of the board was a perfect reflection of the conventional and, I would say, ignorant understanding of pain and opioid treatment. And they were unwilling to consider any negotiation with me about restoring my license or allowing me to continue what I was doing. On the second day of the hearing, there was a headline in the Washington Post, the first first guidelines of the Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research Promoted aggressive pain treatment with opioids, and all of a sudden, the question was, which government are they listening to? Also, my an expert witness that I had for this first hearing was the head of the pain service at NIH. So, in what should I say? In a similar circumstance, there's a body of science or or understanding that's technical, and then there's sort of regulatory ignorance that's trying to enforce its will against that. In response to the uh, changing attitude, at least among the people at, the, uh, at NIH and the Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research, the board returned my license to me. The DEA grudgingly gave me back my registration. Uh, but I had already suffered some losses. I had been the medical director of a number of nursing homes. I would participated in a number of health plans. All those people cut me off. So I was uh, in simply a primary general care internist, Uh, But I was so mystified by the uh, lack of intelligence implicit in the legal process that I decided to go to law school. And I went to George Mason Law School starting uh, the fall of 2002. I'm sorry, uh, 1992. I'm 10 years ahead of myself. While there, the publicity given both to my case and to the changing attitude toward pain was beginning increasing popular recognition, but journalistically and otherwise. And I was invited to talk on a national uh, news program, I think it was called America Tonight, in which uh, the general issue of the undertreatment of pain was being raised and experts on various sides of this issue were suggesting how it should be approached. After that television appearance, my office started getting calls from all over the country of people who had chronic pain and who wanted treatment. Now, at this time, this is pretty early in this development of more aggressive use of opioid treatment, there were no protocols. There was no particular concern about addiction and or diversion because there hadn't been any real clinical experience relating to this. So my practice from from 1992 to 1996, was accommodating this onslaught of patients in a circumstance in which many of them lived out of state and in which there were no clear guidelines relating to how to monitor or deal with them. In 1996, two of my patients died, and families complained to the Board of Medicine and the Virginia Board of Medicine uh, initiated another action, summarily suspended my license, And we had a long hearing. Again, the crew of pain experts favorable to opioid treatment were in my court. And they all testified at my hearing. And the net result was after a period of a couple of years, I was given my license back. And that brings us up to 1998. In 1998, once my shingle was hung again... Former patients of mine who had been floundering for a few years came back to me. One of the consequences of the termination of my practice in 1996 were seven of my patients committed suicide. That is the the despair, the lack of of alternative uh, sources of care, uh, the fact that the treatment itself was somewhat unconventional uh, led to uh, desperate circumstances. From... 1998 to 2002, the same pattern of uh, people coming to me from all over the country. And this time, OxyContin, which had been released in 1996, became a significant, uh, what shall I call it, black market commodity. And there were, I guess, developing uh, a more formalized trade mechanism in this commodity, which I wasn't really aware of. I have to confess, I really had no connection to the drug culture as an undergraduate. And I really, what should I say, didn't have street smarts in these matters, and also felt that it wasn't really the role of the doctor to be a policeman. Patients came to me, they came, I had a sort of elaborate introductory requirement that they provide medical records, that they have a local physician, that they have the documentation of the injuries that caused their their chronic pain, uh, and I had, as part of the consent order with the DEA and the Virginia Board of Medicine, had patients waive their right of confidentiality and had a duty to provide to the DEA a list of my patients, their addresses, and all of the controlled substances I prescribed to them. And I thought, even if you're a crook, <laughs> you don't want me giving your name to the DEA, and I thought that would be an adequate deterrent to prevent diversion. It wasn't. And the net result was, as uh, Tim indicated, a bunch of my patients, in fact, were a network of distributors. Those people were turned on me, and I ended up being convicted. We appealed the conviction after the first trial, and the Fourth Circuit reversed my conviction on appeal because Judge Wexler, who had presided over the first trial, had excluded from consideration my good faith. And... A, the Fourth Circuit opinion is an interesting one to read because it distinguishes between object of good faith and subject of good faith. Object of good faith, in legal terms, refers to the, what, what might be called a conventional doctor would do under those circumstances. Subject of good faith would be what I was really thinking. Well, nothing that I was doing was particularly conventional. That is, I was already sort of ahead of the curve with respect to the way in which I was titrating the use of the medicines and the way I was prescribing them, the way I was treating side effects. And uh, in any event, we were successful in getting a reversal. At the second trial, Judge Brinkema, who started off saying, why on earth isn't he settling and and, and, uh, going to jail, so to speak, was ultimately convinced by, again, my experts... Who convinced her that counting pills made no sense medically, and counting pills was the main thing that the prosecution was doing? There was one, one of my patients, and I think I would credit this patient as uh, the one who turned the point. Was somebody who was roughly the same age as Judge Wexler, uh, as Judge Brinkema, uh, and who was a judge's wife, and she had had severe headaches, and because her doctors uh, wanted to find an alternative to opioids. Had had her have brain surgery that had essentially caused her to neurologically regress and to have to relearn how to do everything from bathrooming to talking and moving after this brain surgery, a surgery called a cingulotomy. And the she was she had taken sixty Dilaudid pills an hour or two before she testified. And again that's a lot of pills, and she was perfectly sharp, perfectly clear, and, 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 and said that until she had come to me, she had really been disabled, and since I, within the first day of my adjusting her medications, she was now functional. I don't know if I'm running out of time at this point, but, but uh, I wanted to, I, I sort of summarized, and I think I'll read, even though it's perhaps a little straining to read, just general reflections in my story. One is that the regulatory and criminal cases against me occurred during a period of evolution of medical attitudes toward chronic pain addiction and opioid therapy that was in tension with the war on drugs. This tension is reflected in popular and prosecutorial attitudes and understandings of the major issues uh, in contrast to the medical understandings. That is, there's a popular language and there's a medical language. So there's confusion, for example, between dependence and addiction. Addiction in medical terms is use despite harm for other than a proper purpose. Dependence simply means the fact that one requires high doses of medicine and would suffer withdrawal upon uh, removal of those medicines. These confusions affect the way in which the jury views evidence. And in a way, you're fighting a, a, a claim that, is on a different playing field and operating in different dimensions. I talk one language, jurors and the prosecutor talk another language, and it's hard to make the translations. There's confusion specifically in a criminal trial between medical mistake or malpractice and criminal intent. There's tension also in the understanding of the doctor's role as consensual and consultative. That is, you go to a doctor, you need to sign an informed consent form versus paternalistic and policing. If you're a pain patient now, you have to submit to random drug testing. You're treated essentially as a suspect. It takes enormous financial, familial, social, and psychological resources to put up with an assault by the state. Uh, Again, as Tim mentioned, essentially my assets were blocked. If I didn't have friends and family who had enough to keep me going and a law firm that expended $3 million in lawyer time on my appeal and second trial, I probably would still be in jail or in prison. One of the ironies is that in the discussions about Obamacare, the argument was that if we have federal insurance, uh, we'll have the government there between the doctor and the patient. The irony, of course, is the government is there <laughs> anyway. The strategy of prosecuting doctors as drug dealers has been futile with respect to its policy objectives. Recent articles in the Washington Post talk about the epidemic of heroin use among Fairfax County residents. The uh, There was a 19, uh, 2010 article about, in spite of cotton candy in which lots of doctors and presumed dealers were put in prison, that there was still an explosion of prescription drug abuse in Northern Virginia, D.C. and Maryland. Deputizing doctors in the war on drugs so, has pernicious effects on medicine. It subverts the moral basis of of the medical relationship between doctors and patients. It destroys the confidentiality. Patients are treated as suspects, subjected to random drug testing, punished for deviation from medical instructions for their, quote, noncompliance. If one's interested in liberty, one's not interested in doctors being like that. The intimidation of doctors has restricted access to effective treatment for those who suffer chronic pain. And one of the interesting things about the rhetoric of the DEA is they cite how many drug overdoses or how many people go to emergency rooms with medical complications. There's no countervailing statistic of how many people commit suicide because of chronic pain. So there's no balance in the sense of what's really in the interest of social utility. The criminalization and regulatory suppression of medical judgment that deviates from accepted orthodoxy is a growth industry applied to alleged overutilization of antibiotics. For example, in the treatment of Lyme disease, there have been regulatory and other actions against doctors who have treated it aggressively with antibiotics or certain kinds of procedures. I think a couple of weeks ago there was an article about a uh, pain clinic that was implanting uh, intrathecal pain pumps. Uh, that turned out to be a high Medicaid, Medicare biller. And uh, the question is, are they going to criminalize the decision to do that sort of thing? Well, these things subvert public and patient welfare, privacy, and their liberty interest in controlling their bodies. That's- William Hurwitz, M.D., is a pain treatment specialist based in Virginia. He spoke at the Cato Institute yesterday. You can watch the full event at Cato.org.